Greetings, peace be unto you, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Islam on the Edges podcast, part of the Maidan podcasts with the Ali Wural Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. My name is Ermin Sinanovic, and I am your host. We are grateful to have with us today Dr. Said Mohammed Khairuddin Ojnid from the National University of Singapore. Welcome, Khairuddin. Thank you for having me today. You're most welcome. Uh, Dr. Ojnid is an associate professor at the National University of Singapore. He's also a senior research fellow at Georgetown University. He is the author of several books on Islam, mostly on Islam in Southeast Asia. His latest book is on history of Islam, on the history of Islam in Malaysia. And previously he has published on a variety of issues. He's published a book on one of the most important Indonesian Islamic thinkers of the 20th century, Hamka. He also published a book on the Muslim cosmopolitanism and various other themes and topics uh, and tens of academic articles on issues related to global Islam and Islam in Southeast Asia. This podcast is called Islam on the Edges. It is a part of the global Islam consideration and podcast where we are focusing on the parts of the world where Islam had existed for many centuries, but which are often neglected in the analysis on Islam and global Muslims. Islam on the edges could be understood as a methodological principle. And if applied as such, it could yield new insights into understanding the global nature of Islam. While there has been a significant development in the approaches to the study of Islam, emphasizing its global and non-centric nature, there are still significant remnants of the old approaches that seem to emphasize the centrality of the Middle Eastern and Near Eastern histories, languages, and cultures. Such approaches may be understandable, but their persistence in today's globalized present ought to be brought into question. Islam on the edges is both polycentric and non-centric in nature. It invites us to think of multiple important centers of Muslim culture and religious experience that are equally important and constitutive of what makes Islam a global presence. In its polycentric nature, Islam on the edges imparts a non-centric understanding of Muslim religion. No center region is more important to the understanding of global Islam than another. So based on these basic principles, we are launching into this new podcast and we are hoping to highlight many manifestations of Islam around the world that are often not seen outside the narrow circle of specialists who study these issues. So Dr. Hayruddin, I would like us to talk today about Muslim cosmopolitanism. You wrote a book about it, but I don't want this simply to be a book discussion. I want it to be a discussion of the concept and its manifestations, especially as it was manifested in Southeast Asia. Now, 
your very name, your last name is, your family name is Aljunaid. That doesn't sound Southeast Asian. And Southeast Asia has been for a very long time the place of very, various cultural and civilizational interactions among local populations, the Chinese, the Indians, the Arabs, the Europeans. Can you tell us the story of these interactions by highlighting your own family history? Yes, thank you, Dr. Ermin, for that uh, introduction and um, a very leading and important question about Muslim cosmopolitanism in Southeast Asia. Uh, you're right to say that uh, my surname doesn't actually reflect uh, so-called the local understanding or naming of uh, people and communities here. Um, in truth, my family uh, actually came from a place in the Middle East called Hadramaut, and we are known as uh, the Hadramis. That is actually in the, uh, on the paternal side uh, of my family. My mother, in turn, um, is an Indian, and we hail from uh, South India. And uh, the confluence of these two civilizations produced myself and uh, five other siblings. And this is something not actually unique to my own family. Um, this, this whole cosmopolitan intermingling and interactions uh, is uh, are something that you can find in many Southeast Asian communities, the Hadramis being one of them, there are the Jawi Pranakans and other hybrid communities in the region. So when we talk about Muslim cosmopolitanism in Southeast Asia, uh, it is something that is not only uh, unique to families such as mine, but it is something that is shared by so many communities here that have been around for thousands of years, mixing together, becoming Muslims and learning to know one another through their faith and through their cultures. I see. So when I said that your name doesn't sound very Southeast Asian, that was really a take on what people from outside the region would think. But if you are in the region, you very much know that this type of hybrid uh, interactions and families had existed around for centuries, right? Very much. And I see. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and because of that, um, this whole idea that we always have about people from the outside not being able to identify themselves with people in the inside that is so uh, telling of many of the scholarship that we see right now is not something that reflects the everyday realities of Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, the communities do not divide themselves into boxes that the Europeans and other colonial powers did when they came to this part of the world. Rather, uh, people from the outside very quickly became indigenized and accepted as part and parcel of the already plural community that is here. And because of that, the whole idea of the inside and the outside, the insider and the outsider uh, is not something that is uh, very much uh, a reality here. Rather, we celebrate a lot of ambiguities in terms of identities and the whole idea of being Creole or hybrid or mixed is something that is celebrated here, especially amongst Muslims. Yeah, it is interesting. As you know, I've lived in Southeast Asia for a number of years. I was in Malaysia and Southeast Asia always struck me as 
on the one hand, a quintessential frontier, quintessential edge, especially for the Islamic culture and civilization, and at the same time as a very important center of Muslim culture and civilization. Um, you know, Indonesia, for those who know, is the most populous Muslim country in the world. There are close to 300 million Muslims living in Southeast Asia, you know, in Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, the Philippines, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Cambodia. Um, but these areas, uh, especially for people from the West and especially from the United States, where I am right now, uh, are often seen as having very little to do with Islam. What do you think contributed to that perspective where uh, that whole region is not seen as part of the, the wider Muslim culture and civilization? Mm. And uh, I, I may say that this is actually a very recent development in view of uh, the many works that have uh, came out, mostly from the West. Prior to that, even um, the Islamic scholars do not regard this part of, of the world as the ages. Uh, in fact, Southeast Asia, especially Sumatra, and more, more notably Aceh, was more known as the veranda of Mecca, which means that before you actually go to Mecca, you can actually study in Aceh first. There are many scholars in the past that actually came to this part of the world to master many of the religious sciences before they actually take the trip to many parts of the Middle East. And there existed what I call as Muslim global circulations where people come in and out from Southeast Asia to the Arab world, to South Asia, in fact, through North Africa and the rest of the Muslim world. And they see every part of the Muslim world as a center in itself. And this perspective has, uh, has somehow been effaced, partly due to a lot of the scholarship that came from Europe that defines Europe as the center. And through it, actually see the Muslim world from that angle of vision. So there is this whole, what has been called as the diffusionist theory of Islam and Islamization, that the pure Islam, the big tradition, comes from the Arab world, and the little traditions come from elsewhere in the world, including Southeast Asia, which has always been seen as the furthest geographical region from the center of Islam. So we have uh, an intellectual problem caused and perpetuated largely by the forces of colonialism, orientalism. And I think uh, in our times, American hegemonic um, intellectualism. I see. So in some ways, we need to remap our intellect even to try to understand Islam differently. And I think this is precisely what Islam on the Edges is about. This is precisely what we are trying to do by highlighting uh, and problematizing many of these issues by saying that in order to have a true global perspective on Islam, we need to do away with this notion of center and periphery and uh, the understanding that the true Islam comes from the Middle East and that Islam in other regions of the world is somehow a lesser Islam. Uh, yes. and, and Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I, I just, um, as you are saying uh, that just now, uh, it reminds me actually of a Malay word called uh, Hilir and Hulu. And mm. the whole notion of the ages 
actually refer to this concept of the hilal. Hilal means uh, a place that is at the threshold of a given riyam, which means that the ages are not actually insignificant. Rather, the ages can tell us what is actually happening in the center. The, the ages practically illuminate whatever that is happening in the center. So I must say that this whole idea of Islam on the ages truly, truly reflects what Southeast Asians actually see themselves vis-a-vis -vis the larger Muslim world. Yeah, thank you so much for, for saying that. And I think uh, this idea of Islam on the edges, um, as I'm thinking about it, is really deeply influenced by my own experience in Southeast Asia because I quickly realized living there, that um, Islam there wasn't peripheral in any way, and that Muslims there are so well connected to other parts of the world um, and are so open-minded. And this brings me really to our main topic, which is uh, Muslim cosmopolitanism. Um, I, can you tell us a little bit what prompted you to study cosmopolitanism and why do you think this particular concept is of such importance? For Muslims today? Mm -hmm. So when, when we study Islam in Southeast Asia, in fact Islam uh, in, the, in the entire Muslim world, we cannot divorce the text from the context. And here when we look at Islam uh, all over the world, especially in Southeast Asia, the Quran and of course the hadith of Rasulullah play a big role in the shaping of the sense and the sensibilities of the people uh, in many parts of the Muslim world, especially in Southeast Asia. And I was particularly moved, firstly, by the text, where in the Quran, um, it is stated in Surah Al-Hujarat that uh, Allah has created humankind in different races and tribes and groups from male and female in order for them to know each other. And this whole idea of uh, people from different parts of the world, people from different backgrounds coming together is something that is uh, advocated and in fact encouraged in the Quran. That is the text. And then when I turn my eyes to the context, you see this happening basically uh, in the everyday realities of Muslims in Southeast Asia. When we put these two things together, what I see is actually a kind of cosmopolitanism that was there. Now, take note that I do not claim to be the first to use this concept, Muslim cosmopolitanism. Uh, the great historian of global Islam, Marshall Hoxson, actually coined the term in his uh, classic, The Venture of Islam. He calls it Islamic cosmopolitanism that developed throughout the history of Islam. Another scholar by the name of Bruce Lawrence uh, made or uh, restate the point in one of his essays urging scholars to look at this aspect of Islam, what I've done basically through my own research is to show that this whole idea of Muslim cosmopolitanism is not something that we can find in the everyday realities of uh, Muslims anywhere in the world, especially in Southeast Asia, but that we can link it back to the Quran and that we can link it back to the practices that are made alive by Muslims everywhere in the world, especially in Southeast Asia. And for this reason, this is why I defined Muslim cosmopolitanism a little bit more different than the scholars of the past. I see it 
as a style of thought, a habit of seeing the world, a way of living that is rooted in the central tenet of Islam, which is that everyone is part of a common humanity, accountable to God, and that we are morally responsible towards one another. So there is this practical dimension to it. It is not only an ideal, uh, but it is something that has to be turned into practical action. To embrace Muslim cosmopolitanism is to exhibit a high degree of receptiveness to universal values. That means not only the values of Islam per se, but the values of Islam as it is reflected in the values of humankind uh, that are also embedded within one's own customs and traditions. So what I emphasize in my own conceptualization of this term vis-a-vis -vis the realities on the ground is that we cannot divorce what is universal from what is particular, that customs and traditions play a big role in shaping how Muslims um, get along with one another and with other communities as well because we have uh, in Islamic law this whole notion, notion of al-ajjatu muhakama that customs is also a source of hukum. Hence, with this, Muslims in the region actually see it as a legal injunction to get along with communities around them to build uh, good societies with them and, and uh, to live together peacefully. Yeah, thank you so much for elaborating on this and your definition of Muslim cosmopolitanism. So I think now our listeners can now have a really good grasp on what you mean by it. And you sort of anticipated my next question by uh, your final words in your previous answer, which is, um, it is on the one hand easier to understand Muslim cosmopolitanism as a Muslim thing, but how do non-Muslims figure in Muslim cosmopolitanism? And how is that similar to or different from how they've been treated historically, especially under the various fiqh, jurisprudential regimes that existed in Muslim history? Mm -hmm. So in my latest book, Islam in Malaysia and Entwined History, I make the forceful argument that we cannot study the development of Islam in Malaysia, and, and that means in Southeast Asia as a whole, and in fact in global Islam, without putting into consideration the agency of non-Muslims. Whether we recognize it or not, or whether we want to acknowledge it uh, in our writings and in our thinking about this issue, non-Muslims have figured strongly in the making of Islam from the time of the Prophet Muhammad until this very day. And we know the great figure Abu Talib in the life of Rasulullah wasallam. And in Southeast Asia, the spread of Islam in the region was made possible basically through the work of traders. Many of them are non-Muslims who traveled with Muslims into the region. The Hadramis, the Chinese, the Indians from many parts of the Muslim world came, the Persians, together with non-Muslims, uh, ships and, and junks. In fact, one of a notable figure in the history of Southeast Asia, Emperor uh, Admiral Cheng Ho or Cheng He was a Chinese admiral in the Chinese uh, Navy. He was practically sent by the emperor, the Chinese emperor then, who was non-Muslim, to come to this part of the world for diplomatic purposes. But with the knowledge that Cheng He was a Muslim and part of Cheng He's mission was actually to spread Islam in the region. So how That's do non-Muslims fit into this whole project of Muslim cosmopolitanism? They were the linchpin 
of the development of this Muslim cosmopolitanism. They made Islam in this region cosmopolitan. And what is unique is that they took up very, very important places in the end in the regimes that were set up by the sultans and also by uh, post-colonial states as well in the building of uh, cosmopolitan Muslim societies. Yeah, and I would like to sort of build on that by saying that when I was in Southeast Asia and I lived in Malaysia and visited Indonesia and Singapore, Thailand many times, I was always struck by the fact that sacred is so important across religions and that there is a huge respect for the sacred uh, by followers of one religion toward the sacred of another religion. Uh, and I haven't seen really that in many other parts of the world. Obviously, Europe, uh, the West has been thoroughly secularized. And so the sacred had been reduced to the private sphere. In Southeast Asia, whether you are in a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or environment, you find the sacred central to the existence. And uh, people share and partake in that regardless of their religious affiliation. Can you elaborate on this and how does it relate to Muslim cosmopolitanism? Yeah. When Islam came to this part of the world, one of those things that happened was a transformation of the linguistic worlds of uh, the communities here. Islam came with a new language that was Arabic and transformed the Malay language into one that was very Arabized. But what is interesting about this Arabization of the Malay language was that the Arab terminologies or Arab words did not replace many of the religiously inclined words in the Malay language. One of those words that was not replaced, even with Islamization, was the word agama, or some say mm -hmm. ugama. Yes. The word connotes not only religion, but a sense of sacredness. And the mere fact that it was not replaced only goes to show that generations of generations of uh, Islamizers that brought Islam to this part of the world did not seek to undo what was understood by the local community as what is sacred and what is to be um, treated in high reverence. I can cite many other examples. For example, if you go to Malaysia today or Indonesia, and when it's time to pray, they don't use the word solah. They use the word sembahyang, which is actually mm -hmm. of Hindu origin, which means to pray to that which um, sacred. And the same is it with fasting. Instead of using saum, we use puasa, which is from Sanskrit. Until today, Allah is still referred to with the word, with the term Tuhan, which means God. And the word Tuhan is still used by Christians, by Buddhists, by Hindus, as a way of uh, Muslims to show, showing to the rest of these communities that we still respect your religion as your way of life, but that we have a different understanding of what God means to us. So this cosmo Muslim cosmopolitanism that we are talking about, it is, it is something that people talk about every day. Of course, uh, people don't realize this, uh, but that at the end of the day, 
everybody share the same linguistic or the same nomenclature to describe what is sacred. Hence, they see everything that is sacred in the same manner. I see. That is very powerful. And I had witnessed on many occasions uh, where people would show utmost reverence to the sacred that people of other religions uh, revered. And that is something that I was struck with, especially coming from Europe, from the Balkans, from Southeastern Europe, where there is often very strong um, mistrust for people of other religions. And uh, oftentimes there is a sort of a very strong division. Uh, I found the fluidity that exists in Southeast Asia quite refreshing and, and eye-opening at the same time. Um, well, let me uh, ask you this, that we talked about the sacred. I think it is very natural that we would move to another sacred area, and that is marketplace. Uh, there is perhaps no better place to examine and observe Muslim cosmopolitanism than a marketplace. Tell us more about the role of the marketplace in Southeast Asian Muslim cosmopolitanism, and especially the role of women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so before the coming of Islam, Southeast Asia was already a hub of commerce that was linked to many parts of the world. Europeans, Arabs, Indians, Persians, Chinese have traveled to this region before Islam came. And Islam basically came uh, as a trading religion to this part of the world. And because of this, markets uh, in Southeast Asia were hubs of ideas. And this is the place where people share and interact with one another. Ermin, you have lived in Southeast Asia, and I'm sure you can tell the difference between markets in Southeast Asia with markets in the Balkans. People Absolutely. talk a lot. Yes. So when you talk about... <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about communication, you are really talking uh, talking about people interacting heavily with one another. They may just know you uh, and they will ask you, you know, where are you from? Uh, so what are you bringing here? Uh, can you tell us a bit about your culture? And this is part and parcel of the culture in the, in the region. And because of this, Islam grew from uh, these conduits of interactions. And until today, the marketplace, if you have been to Tanah Abang in Jakarta, if you have been to the Gelang Market in Singapore, if you have been to the Siti Katija Market in Kelantan and so forth and so forth, you will see these um, uh, highly intensive interactions going on. I have people coming from the outside uh, feeling that many of these markets are very, very un-Islamic. And here, that leads me to the second point. Uh, one of those things that is interesting about markets in Southeast Asia uh, is the predominance of women. You don't mm -hmm. see men around as much as you see local women trade, buying and trading. And this hugs back to the pre-Islamic period because in Southeast Asia, the matrilocal custom uh, is widely held and women are pretty much uh, dominant and active in this society. They're very much uh, involved in trade. And because of this, until... Is, even when Islam came, that culture was not removed. It became part and parcel of the Islamic culture that was still there. And these women were basically purveyors of the, of the new religion that come to this part of the world. So we're talking about really people talking, communicating, 
sharing, and in fact, intermarriages between women and foreign traders, especially from the Muslim world, happen by virtue of these communications in the marketplace. And that led actually partly to the spread of Islam. Yeah, it is so interesting. Um, obviously, I do miss going to Pasar Malam, you know, the evening market in um, Malaysia or Indonesia. And I always was struck how much importance people attach to going to these places. It wasn't just, I'm going to go there and buy some food and fruit and vegetables. It was almost as a ritual that people were at going to these places, even if they really didn't know that they needed something. It was a weekly occurrence where you had to show up and interact with people and talk to them and, and, and just partake in that whole activity. Yes. And uh, it actually is very much related to the saying in Malay, tak kenal, maka tak cinta, which means that if you do not know someone, you cannot love that person enough. And the way to know that person is actually to buy and sell. So buying and selling is a big thing within the Islamic culture here, the Muslim cosmopolitan culture here. And the buying and selling actually involves words. And this is why in Southeast Asia, we are always reminded and being reminded that we need to communicate a lot but we need to be very, very, very careful with what we say. Because we say in Malay, kerana mulut badan binasa, which means because of your, your mouth or your lips or your words, basically, uh, you can actually enter into destruction. And if you turn that thing around, precisely because of communication, especially by the women, Islam could grow and could grow in a way that was accommodating to other communities that was uh, that were here. I just would like to add one more point about the women uh, part. Uh, sure. That because women had such high standing in Southeast Asian community, it was very normal for women to marry and remarry and remarry many many times. One colonial scholar who studied Aceh in the nineteenth century found that women were married more than three to four times uh, in Southeast Asian communities, especially in the Islamic communities. And this was something that was uh, tolerated, in fact, celebrated, because it led to the development of a very, very multiracial society. Uh, so it wasn't stigmatized as it would be in many societies. Not at all. Actually, being married and remarried was something that was encouraged because women accumulated capital uh, from it. And not only that, they expand the gene pool to include different communities. These people would define the landscape of Southeast Asia. And precisely because of this, if you go to Aceh, for example, you'll see people looking like Arabs, a bit like Europeans, some look Persians, others look Chinese, and the rest would look very Southeast Asian or Malay. This happened because of uh, this, this celebration of um, going in and out of marriages. So the Europeans were, were, were basically confused when they saw uh, this tradition that was there. Uh, but they didn't understand that it was not because uh, women in this region were um, addicted to marriage, uh, marriage and re remarrying. 
but that it was part and parcel of expanding uh, the culture that was there and to make societies even more cosmopolitan than it was before. Yeah, that is quite remarkable. And uh, you, earlier on, you mentioned Market Khatija in, in Kelantan, which is the northeast province or state in Malaysia. Can you tell us more about that market and the role of women there? Yeah, so that market is very, very interesting because you have a few communities that have been there for a long, long time. Kelantan is at the tip of uh, southern Thailand. So you have uh, Thais. Uh, uh, they are also based in Kelantan as well. And this market, as I was mentioning just now, it is practically dominated by women. It's run by women. And uh, it is basically a women-based economy. And the authorities there, we always know Kelantan as a very conservative Muslim state. They do not touch the marketplace. So when I was there doing a bit of field work, I was asking the people there, you know, like, um, isn't this a stigmatizing point in your society that is very, very so-called uh, Islamic? They were telling me, this is what Islam is. Uh, the women are running things well enough. Uh, they are dominant. They know what they, it's good for them. And we just um, leave, leave them to do their job. So I, I was asking, where are the men? They say, well, they are either at home or in the coffee shop or at work. They don't get involved in all of these things because nobody's going to allow them to come in. So women, women are dominating that area. Women are dominating trade. And I've heard stories of women becoming so rich that they would uh, later on trade uh, in gold. And I think gold trade became among women in Kalant Muslim women in Kalantan a big thing, right? Very much. And... The, the reason why they were able to do that, and, and until now they are still able to do that, is because they ma mastered a few languages. So some of these women could speak uh, Thai language, others a little bit of uh, uh, Chinese dialect, and of course the Kelantanese language. In history, many of the Kelantanese could actually uh, speak a little bit of market Arabic. So because of the power of languages that they had, this marketplace are really, you know, uh, they, they appear to us today as uh, a place where you can actually learn languages. In the, during the height of the Malaccan Sultanate, the Portuguese who traveled into uh, the Sultanate found that there were more than 80 languages spoken in the marketplace. I mean, these are Portuguese spies, you know, they want to, to come in and colonize. And they were shocked by what they saw. I mean, you're looking at so many communities there and people trading and selling, mostly women. Uh, they are able to speak so many of these languages. This tradition somehow uh, became disrupted due to colonialism. But until today, many of the women, they know better English than the men. I see. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm sure we could expand on this topic, but I wanted also to move our conversation uh, to another important site of Muslim cosmopolitanism. I think any visitor to Southeast Asia must be struck by its sacred geography. What can you tell us about the mosque and its function within the cosmopolitan space and as a cosmopolitan space? Well, yeah. uh, to, be to begin with, uh, we need to look at the externals of the mosque. Mosque in Southeast Asia, although some took on what is known later on as the Arab Saranic architecture or the Saranic Turkish architecture, 
most of the mosques in Southeast Asia actually manifest the cultural uh, metrics of Southeast Asia, which is that the mosques, some of which actually looked like Hindu temples, and you can still find it uh, in many parts of Indonesia. The rest of the mosques in the region practically look like um, the kampongs, and this was in history. And more recently, even in Kelantan, there existed what they call as Chinese-inspired mosques. So you see temple-looking uh, architectures uh, that are actually mosques in Soviet, in Soviet Asia. So when we talk about sacred... Yeah, I've, I've seen some of uh, those kind of pagoda-style mosques, if you will. Oh, yes, yes. So, so many of them now. We have a big one. Uh, I think it was called, it's called the Beijing Mosque uh, in Kelantan. In Jakarta, it's also called the Beijing Mosque. And all, all of them don't reflect uh, our stereotypical idea of what a mosque should look like, which is that you want to see a dome, you want to see this tall, uh, so-called um, uh, building where the Muazin used to stand. Um, I mean, I yeah, so all of these things don't exist. And from the externals, this mosque actually reflect the cosmopolitan uh, culture that is already there. Now, when you enter into many of these mosques, what is interesting about Southeast Asian mosques in history and until today is the celebration of the existence of, the existence of women. And this is something that I explored in, in my books where when the Arabs and the Indians and um, people from different parts of the world uh, were still de debating about whether women should go to the mosque, Southeast Asians encourage women to attend uh, mosque prayer sessions. And we're not talking about uh, the daily prayers. We're talking about Friday prayers. So the Gayo community in Aceh, for example, they have a special space for women to attend Friday prayers. And there is this whole idea that, you know, we, we must not divide uh, between men and women in terms of their ability to come for some of these uh, sacred events. And the space becomes the space for everyone. The other thing that you can see in many of the mosques in Southeast Asia is that they share a close proximity with other religious sites. So if you go to Sarawak, for example, a mosque would uh, share the same kapak as the church. And this was not seen and is still not seen as something that is bad or something that is not acceptable to Islam. Because the whole notion of sacred geography for Muslims here is not bounded by the whole idea that this is Muslim land that is non-Muslim land. Rather, rather, as I was saying just now, because the whole notion of agama is very wide. Whatever that is sacred remains sacred for everybody. We can share this space and we can make use of this space without necessarily infringing some of the demands of our faith. In Malaysia, in some parts of Malaysia, they now celebrate Chinese New Year in the mosques. And this is not seen uh, as an issue. I see. So are you saying then that those classical jurisprudential notions of division of territory between Darul Islam and Darul Harb or the abode of Islam and the abode of war do not really apply to Southeast Asian Muslims? Well, the ulama in Southeast Asia, especially in the earlier periods when Islam came to this part of the world, did actually adopt the whole notion of Darul Islam and Darul Harb 
But very soon, by the 16th century, when Islam in the region already became predominant and when the region was seen as a hub of Islamic or Muslim commerce, the ulama basically changed their minds. And they came up with this whole idea of Darul Aman or Darus Salam. And that's why if you go to many parts of Southeast Asia, especially in Malaysia, you will see states with a secondary name. Something, something, Darul Aman. Something, something, Darus Salam. And uh, the whole peaceful um, or, or the, 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 the notion of peace is underlined more than the notion of war and the whole idea that we are supposed to divide ourselves between Muslims and non-Muslims. Now, by saying this, I'm, I'm not saying that the ulama do not have uh, an idea of difference. They, did, they do. They did and they still do until today. They still mark difference between what it means to be a Muslim and what it means to be a non-Muslim. But in issues that are not involving uh, what they see as theological matters and matters pertaining to... Um, uh, obligatory rituals, the ulama in this part of the world are generally, generally open to the existence of non-Muslims and even some of these non-Muslim practices that are congruent with Islam. I see. That's quite fascinating. Uh, now, uh, you, you mentioned the ulama and ulama are part of the intellectual elites of the society I wanted to ask you, what is the role of Muslim public intellectuals in your vision of Muslim cosmopolitanism? And can you tell us more about Azumardi Azra's concept of Islam Musantara? Yes. So um, with the coming of modernity, a lot of these Muslim intellectuals who are not necessarily trained uh, in the traditional institutions um, of Islamic learning have been trying to put out ideas that promote the whole notion of Muslim cosmopolitanism. One of those persons is actually Azumardi Azra, uh, a scholar and in a public intellectual based in Jakarta. His idea of Islam Nusantara caused a lot of debates around Southeast Asia. His detractors uh, state that Islam Nusantara is another ideological attempt to create a new Islam on the ages of the Muslim world that will somehow be so much different from other parts of the world. In reality, what Azumardi uh, Azra, Azra was trying to say is that you can find some aspects of Islam in this part of the world that are pretty particular and unique without necessarily being un-Islamic. And he's actually right about this. Um, when we look at how Islam is manifested in many parts of the world, you see the force of culture and customs playing mm -hmm. uh, in the ways in which Islam is uh, lived and expressed in those parts of the world. In Southeast Asia, as I was saying just now, women are held in very, very high regard. And this may be seen by the ulama, the scholars, the people from other parts of the world to be unacceptable. But for people in this part of the world, it is not something that is seen as infringing the main tenets of Islam that is largely based on the maqasid sharia. That if you are protecting the life of someone, if you are protecting the lineage, the property, and so forth, 
um, that Islam is an equally valid Islam. Now, my critique of the whole notion of Islam Nusantara is that the notion of Nusantara itself can be very, very problematic. Um, can you tell us what, what is the meaning of Nusantara? Yes. So, Nusantara uh, is actually a, a Sanskrit word to denote an area that can be categorized today as the Malay world. And here we are talking about islands of East Asia, which is Singapore, Malaysia, Southeast Asia, um, Southern Thailand, and a little bit of uh, Southern Philippines. Um, the, 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 the term actually denotes not only a region, but also people who belong to a certain linguistic group, which is Malays. The problem with this term is that the Malays, as we know now, have expanded their reach without, uh, uh, beyond that limits that was seen as Nusantara. Hence, it becomes a very constricted term to be used. Because when we look at Islam in Southeast See. Asia, because communities were traveling uh, throughout the region, and until today, if you go to many parts of um, Cambodia, you will, see, you will still find the Cham community who are still Malay-speaking, and they've identified themselves as part and parcel of what is known as the Alam Melayu or the Malay world. And we need to somehow reimagine how we look at um, the geography here. And the word Nusantara may not aptly capture this word. So um, let us move then to the next question. Um, and I think you write about this as well in your book, uh, is that Muslim women bodies are almost inescapably a contested issue. How does this work in Southeast Asia? Uh, anybody who had been to Southeast Asia, especially the Muslim Southeast Asia, you know, in Malaysia and, and Indonesia, uh, will find that um, almost probably a majority of women there wear hijab or some sort of a head covering. And that wasn't the case even as recently as three or four decades ago. So what contributed to this prevalence of hijab and how is this to be understood in the context of cosmopolitanism? Mm. Well, the whole notion of hijab is not something that was totally missing uh, in the minds of Southeast Asian Muslims. Before hijab that we know today was introduced in Southeast Asia, Muslim women wore what they call as selendang. It's a piece of cloth that they put over their heads whenever they are out of their houses. And this was, I would say, uh, a pre-hijab, hijabi face, right? Um, and it was there. The notion of modesty uh, was that one should be, or uh, women should be covering their heads uh, and that this covering should also include the covering of their bosoms. By the 1970s, with the coming of Islamic revivalism, especially after the Islamic revolution in Iran, the whole notion of hijab began to change. Southeast Asian Muslims, especially the women, folk were introduced to this whole idea of hijab as closing one's um, uh, body other than the face and the hands. And this quickly caught on amongst the women folk. The women folk. I've been asked when I gave a lecture in Trunganu, uh, how is it, why is it that women picked up this whole thing very, very quickly? The reason is because many women in the region 
saw it as a continuity rather than a rupture of the past. When the new kind of hijab was introduced, many women could just look at it as nothing different from what they have done before. The only difference is that the covering comes with other forms of modest fashion, which, when it had grew in terms of influence, became as stylish, in fact, more stylish than the fashions that came uh, before that. So the prevalence is linked to many things. Hijab was or now is seen as part and parcel of the popular culture, popular modes of dressing amongst women. And that the hijab is also seen from the religious angle as a way to ensure that their modesty um, is protected and upheld. And because of this, women in the region and men see it as part and parcel of the Muslim cosmopolitan landscape. In fact, even non-Muslims began to see that this is a new form of culture, like the cultures that came before it, that ought to be seen as a transformation, not something negative, but something that makes Southeast Asian Islam more powerful. And because of this, in Singapore, we do not have a problem having a hijabi as our president. And in Malaysia, just for two and a half years, we had a deputy prime minister who is a hijabi, one Aziza. And of course, many politicians in Indonesia, uh, in many parts of Southeast Asia, uh, wear the hijab and they are seen as good enough, in fact, better than many of the people who are running the countries and running many of the services within their nations. Let's see. Um, I think this whole notion of cosmopolitanism also is um, very much in modern times linked to the issue of the secular state. And in your work, you bring up the secular state and its role in constricting cosmopolitanism. I think in a way, this is a useful critique of a secular state. Can you explain this, explain this in the context of Southeast Asia? Yeah. So with the coming of the post-colonial state, countries such as uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Southern Philippines, Southern Thailand, all parts of Southeast Asia are trying to define what Islam actually means and the place of the religion in their, their, their countries. And in trying to define Islam, in trying to domesticate Islam, what they have done is basically to disallow certain aspects of Islam that was already there to be expressed and lived by the people here. Take note that before the coming of uh, the secular state, the post-colonial state, and of course the colonial state as well, contributing to the making of the post-colonial state, people travel seamlessly across the regions. Kinship ties were there and people see themselves not only as part of the place that they are born, but as part and parcel of the region. What the secular state has done is basically to define Islam pri primarily from the, the angle of the nation, hence constricting the whole idea of the seamlessness of the religion, that's one. Second, also imposing certain ideas about Islam, thus ruling out other ideas, and these ideas must be in line with the circular, circular notion of what Islam is supposed to be. And thirdly, what the secular state has done is basically 
to uh, ensure that certain groups in society that are expressing different versions of Islam that the state see as not in line with the agendas as, uh, of the state to be sidelined or in, in fact uh, suppressed in uh, their own communities. So this is where my critique of the secular state is not to say that the secular states that we have today cannot be tolerant towards Muslim cosmopolitanism as an idea and an ideal. Rather, the shape of the secular states that we see in Southeast Asia uh, from the 1960s onwards have largely been one that cannot accept this whole inclusive idea of what Islam is supposed to be. And this is something that we need to try and uh, explain through the force of scholarship in order for the people who are running these states to understand that Islam in the region has always been open and inclusive and very regional in its outlook without having to sacrifice uh, the loyalties that we have in our local context. I see. Uh, in, in your work, you call both Indonesia and Malaysia secular states, but you have a very interesting label for these two. You call Malaysia the partisan secular state and Indonesia the pragmatic secular state. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So uh, for Indonesia, we need to uh, understand that Indonesia is a mammoth of a country. It's huge. And uh, even though during the height of uh, Suharto's regime, there were a lot of repression and uh, a strong sense of authoritarianism in the country, uh, Suharto could not control all of the Muslims in Indonesia. Hence, what he, he did was to adopt an ever-changing and pragmatic ideology, circular ideology, in managing Islam. Uh, by the 1980s, when Suharto saw that Islamic revivalism was getting very, very strong, he actually co-opted many of uh, the intellectuals uh, in society. And in fact, even the movements that are out there, such as Muhammadiyah and Nahdlatul Ulama, to be part and parcel of his state organs. And while that gave a lot of legitimacy uh, to his power, in the end, it actually caused his downfall because Muslim forces now have access to governmental funds and they could also uh, bring about uh, a change in regime that happened after that. So pragmatism was the ways in which Suharto managed uh, his regime and his uh, policies toward Islam. As for Malaysia, Right after the end of British colonial rule, the leaders of Malaysia saw it necessary to define the nation from the angle of Malays and Malayans. That at the end of the day, the whole notion of Ketuanan Melayu or Malay supremacy ought to be upheld. And they become partisan when it comes to dealing with Islam, which is that they try to use Islam and here, Islamic revivalism in the 1980s actually gave them more engine uh, to justify this. They used Islam as a way to prop up Malay dominance in that country. And what took place basically was a nationalization of Islam, couched in the image of the Malays, and imposed onto society. 
the cosmopolitan cultures that were there, the Muslim cosmopolitan cultures that were there on the ground became affected by these policies. And because of this, in some instances in Malaysian history, you see a lot of uh, very radical and extreme groups calling for uh, the Malayization of Islam in the country. I see. Hairudin, um, this was definitely a fascinating conversation. Uh, we're bringing it to an end. I would just like to ask one final question, and that is, what can the rest of the world, and in particular the rest of the Muslim world, learn from Southeast Asia in terms of cosmopolitanism? Yeah, I think the rest of the Muslim world could learn from Southeast Asia the whole idea of living together with all communities, be it religious, cultural, and even secular communities. What Southeast Asia offer to the rest of the world is this whole idea that we Muslims should look at other people as equal in the eyes of men and that all creation of God is to be respected, protected, and also given their due place in society. So Islam in Southeast Asia provides this example. This example. I'm not denying that there were violent episodes that happened throughout Southeast Asia within Muslims and non-Muslims, the Muslims themselves. But by and large, when we shift from looking at all of these events to looking at the everyday life of Muslims in Southeast Asia, this is a highly tolerant society that accepts anybody and everybody to be part and parcel of the landscape that we are in, in as long as we show respect and we embrace the hybrid and cosmopolitan culture that defines Islam in the region. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful and invigorating conversation. And I hope that we will revisit some of these themes in future as well. This was, thank you so much. You're most welcome. This was Muslim Cosmopolitanism podcast with Dr. Hairudin Al-Junid from the National University of Singapore on Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast. We hope that you will join us in the next episodes as well. Thank you.